Today's scripture reading is from Daniel 9. If you'd like to follow along in our red Bibles in the pews, this is page 747. And we'll read from Daniel 9, 20 to 24. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Really fun part of Daniel this morning. And um, the uh, latter verses that Steph didn't get to read are actually the more um, fun ones. So uh, we are going to be continuing on from Daniel 9 from last week where Daniel um, recognized the splendor of God. He saw his own unrighteousness. He saw the people's unrighteousness as a, as a group. And we practiced confession. We practiced repentance last week because it, it's so important. And if we even look back to the Lord's Prayer, we, we see how he teaches us to pray. Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 2. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And this is what Daniel did, and he recognized his sin. He recognized the people's sin that gave rise to their own destruction and desolation. Each one of us is part of a larger representation of the world, our culture, our church. And a question for us is, are any of us ready like Daniel was, to confess the sins of the church and country culture today? Are any of us ready, like Daniel, to make known to God that we are indeed guilty of those things? And this is what Daniel did, is he, he did that with God. And some may even argue, you know, we, we're sinless, everyone's good, we, we don't need to do that sort of thing. But I, I, I don't think so. Um, even if it's not doing something out of our own actions that is so-called wrong, but what about out of neglect, that we're, we're just not doing anything? Because there's a lot of neglect. If that were not true, then why all the injustice in our world? It's that we have neglected so much that we as a church have not stepped up to where we are supposed to, or our own world being so privileged with our resources, or our culture who is more educated, that we haven't stepped up, that there's a sin of neglect to not step into where we can. So of course there are sins that we need to confess, even if it's not something that we have done, but it's what we haven't done. 
everyone is guilty of the neglect, I think, in our church at least, in our culture, in, in our world. We, we have so much and yet we haven't done all that we can. I don't think any of us are <clears throat> guiltless. And even as a church here who loves the word of God and loves Jesus and tries to do everything we can to help those in need, we still are in need of repentance because there are still places we have neglected, that we haven't been representing Christ well in those areas. So we need to repent, which is essentially just changing our direction to go into God's direction. We, we continue in our self-centered ways so many times in our, our ways of self-preservation, in the ways we want to go as opposed to the direction that God leads us to go. And so here Daniel stops and he recognizes the state of the people in 600 BC. And it, what, it, what it led him to do was personally confess what was wrong with him personally and then the, on behalf of the people, what, what they were doing or not doing. And so something for us to consider in 2019 is to recognize the state of our church, our culture, our world. And quite frankly, I don't think it looks all that great. There, there's a lot of things that just aren't looking all that great. And if we as the church don't intervene into those things, who will? Now, I'm not trying to paint a doomsday picture for you, even though it may seem that way. I'm, I'm just wanting to point out the, the reality of it all and that there is a lot for us to confess. There's a lot for us to repent of, to ask God to intervene. But before God intervenes, there are things that we need to work on with God, just like Daniel did in terms of asking for forgiveness and confessing and changing just like any other relationship, if, if there's a seriously damaged relationship with someone, it doesn't just continue on in a healthy way unless somebody there who wronged the other person says sorry. Right? You, you don't just go on your merry way thinking that everything's fine after you've seriously offended or insulted somebody. There, there has to be a seeking of forgiveness, a seeking of reconciliation. It doesn't just carry on because that's then called an abusive relationship. We don't do that. So there has to be an acknowledgement of wrongdoing, and then there has to be a change. That's simply what confession and repentance are. And when Daniel did that, he confessed for himself and behalf of the people. God answered his petition right away, and we'll read this, starting here in verse 20. <clears throat> Notice this word here, while. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift, swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. While. <clears throat> Meaning, God hears our prayers immediately. And maybe he doesn't answer them immediately, but he Here's our prayers instantly. Isaiah 65, verse 24. Before they call, <clears throat> I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. And David says this in Psalm 139, verse 4. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. 
During Daniel's prayer, God dispatched Gabriel to give him understanding. Verse 22, he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. So God heard Daniel. He answered Daniel, reminding him that he is greatly loved. Now, do you realize that you're not just loved by God because oftentimes people will say like, oh, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. But they're missing a part there, I think, and it's the greatly loved. It's not simply that he loves you, you are greatly loved. That God hears your prayer, God answers your prayers, even though you might not like his answer, but God answers prayers. And you have to remember this, that you are greatly loved by God. And so now that you know that you are greatly loved, therefore, but first you have to know that. Before you know any sort of vision thing, before you have any sort of understanding, you have to know that you are greatly loved. So before we go on about doing all this stuff for God, before we consider the word uh, or understanding the things of God or understanding the word of God, do we know that we are greatly loved by God? You know, if you have a child, if you don't uh, imagine a child that you love, like a niece or nephew, cousin, your best friend's kids or whoever, if you don't have a child that you love, I have four of them that you can borrow, just pick one, Um, you can pick one. But imagine that child, and before you want them to learn anything, before you want them to learn the word no, before you want them to do anything, you want them to understand something about you first, don't you? You want them to know that you greatly love them. That's the first thing you want them to know. Before you teach them anything, you want them to feel that. You want them to be confident that, My mommy and my daddy love me. Before you do anything with them. Before they get consumed consumed by school or build their career or do whatever it may be, you want them, you want to just grab their face and be like, honey, look at me and look into my eyes. I greatly love you. You want them to know that before they do anything, that I love you a lot. And so Daniel knew God greatly loved him. And then we read the instruction to consider the word and understand the vision. First, it's God's great love. And then we see how Daniel's efforts and and God's enabling work together for Daniel to, to gain this understanding, to gain this knowledge, to know the great love of God is a foundational piece. And then we can receive God's wisdom and then we can pay attention to those things, just like it was for Daniel. Psalm 107, verse 43. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let him consider the steadfast love of the Lord. God gives great and steadfast love, and we need to know this first. And then we can pay attention to those other things that that God gives us so that then we can gain understanding and we can gain wisdom. The appearance of Gabriel to Daniel is evidence that God heard Daniel. 
And God wants Daniel to know that he greatly loves him. And this is true of us as well. That God hears us. And God wants us to know that we are greatly loved. And before we go about doing anything else, we need to know that. We need to be secure in that. Now, how did Daniel receive an experience like this? Let's look to Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2, as to whom the Lord looks. And the prophet Isaiah writes this, But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So we can see that Daniel was such a person through the entire book of Daniel, someone who was humble, contrite in spirit, trembling at God's word. How do we know this? Because we've read all about this about Daniel from Daniel 1 till now. And then there's this interesting phrase in verse 21. At the time of the evening sacrifice. That little phrase gives us some good insight as to who Daniel was and the type of person he was. How? How so? What's so significant about that phrase? Well, Daniel hasn't been to an evening sacrifice since he was a little kid taken out of Jerusalem and into Babylonian captivity. There hasn't been an evening sacrifice. And yet this is the place where we find him in Babylon. And so this is giving us a timeline, timeline of what was happening with Daniel. He's there while I was speaking in prayer. The man Gabriel, whom I had seen in a vision at first, came to me in swift light at the time of the evening sacrifice. So this is 3 p.m. And even though Daniel had not participated in an evening sacrifice since he was a kid, he's still observing the significance of this time and still had faith in God's promises of God. Many, many decades later, he's still doing this. How can a kid remember that they used to do that? And then continue this on decades later, over 60, 70 years later, he's still doing this. Keeping his humility, a contrite spirit, trembling at God's word. God reminding Daniel of his great love for him and then to consider the word and to understand the vision of verses 24 through 27, which is what we are to do, going to do as we enter some of the most... Challenging text to interpret in all of the book of Daniel. So, before we go into this, do you know how difficult it is to get a group of commentators to agree 100% on an interpretation of the Bible? Do you know how difficult that is? That, That is impossible. But here is something that all commentators agree on in verses 24 through 27 that it's the most difficult text in the book of Daniel. This is, this is what they agree on. But they don't agree on how, how it's understood, because it's understood in, in many ways. Um, but yet, a lot of people put a lot of emphasis on these verses, which we're not going to do. We're just going to skip to chapter 10, and why bother with all this kind of stuff? How are we to understand the 70 weeks here of Daniel? And here's where I'd like to invite Pastor Nate. Um, (laughs) There are a lot of books you can read, a ton of them. I haven't read all of them. I've read a good chunk, but I've I've not read nearly as many as I, I could. And I'm not going to go through every single interpretation because we don't have the time for that. 
But based off of one's interpretation of these particular verses, you can quickly gauge what tribe they're from. Like in talking to somebody in terms of like, how do you view this? You can, you can guess Pentecostal, Presbyterian. That you can guess pretty quick. If, if you just kind of know the big camps where they camp out and then their answer, you can basically say, okay, that's, that's where they're from. A lot of these camps, they don't like each other because they just think that the other one's flat out wrong and they're like, oh, how silly. How can you interpret it that way? That's silly. And they just simply don't like, like, like each other. So what are these weeks? And, and some of these things may be going through your head. Are these literal seven-day weeks? Or are these weeks of years? Are these literal or are they symbolic? And if you pick up any of these commentaries, you're going to find all sorts of interpretations. And some of them do all of these mathematical gymnastics to get to their conclusions. of like, oh, this happened and this happened and therefore this. And, and so now you have to keep in mind that this was for Daniel and this was for future readers to gain understanding. But some of the things that people have come up with, I don't gain more understanding. I gain confusion. And I don't think that that's what God's purpose was in telling Daniel to record these things for us. So these four verses, they need to be interpreted with what is clearly known already to help us to interpret what is an unclear portion of Scripture, which I think is this. And what can't be done is for this, these four Scriptures, these four verses to define all of the rest of apocalyptic literature for us based off of the four verses. It has to be the other way around. Does that make any sense? That we have to look at apocalyptic literature as a whole and then look at these four verses and not the other way around. That's the same for any other part of Scripture, right? You don't take some obscure verse and then create your whole theology based on one obscure verse. You look at all of it and then you can help define these obscure verses. That's how... Things should be done, and if it's not done that way, that's where you get cults from, right? They, they come up with this thing, obscure thing, and then they built a whole theology on that thing. These four verses are not foundational to the entirety of biblical theology. I, I'm really glad about that, because if it was, like, we'd be in a whole lot of hurt, right? So in interpreting this this morning, I, I need to preface it with this. I reserve the right to change my mind in the future. <laughs> and this is recorded. So if anyone ever says, I'm like, I'm just going to play the recording for you and show you that at 9.34 a.m., I said I reserve the right to change my mind. Even if it's during this sermon, I reserve the right. <laughs> now, this might disturb some of you. This might annoy, unsettle, disappoint some of you, but then there's the other side of it to where it might also encourage some of you to know that we don't know everything. What we do hold at this church is that the word of God is sufficient, it's true, it is right, it is authoritative, but what isn't is our interpretation. Our interpretation is not sufficient, true, right, authoritative, that only the scripture itself is, and sometimes the scriptures are mysterious. Now, if we can't admit that, maybe we're not, as Isaiah says, humble, contrite in spirit, 
and trembling at his word enough. So let's read through these um, easy verses here. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seventy weeks, then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed." And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Amen. (laughs) So we're going to tackle this with the time that is left. Okay? So we know that from Jeremiah that there are 70 literal years of exile that are coming to an end, and Daniel is looking forward to this, and Daniel is aware of this, and he's getting ready for this. The 70 weeks mentioned in uh, 24 has also been interpreted 77s, as if some of you have the NIV Bible, that's what it says there. However, this 70 weeks or this 77s is interpreted in connection to the end of the end and not the end of the exile as spoken of in Jeremiah. So let's look back to verse 24. And then we're going to look at specifically the six things that are going to be accomplished in verse uh, 24. One, to finish the transgression, two, to put an end to sin, three, to atone for iniquity, four, to bring in everlasting righteousness, five, to seal both vision and profit, and six, to anoint a most holy place. Those are those six things. Now, we have the entire Bible before us, and, and taking into consideration the entire New Testament, it seems to me that this is pointing to what Jesus Christ does, those six things. The debate isn't so much, is this Jesus Christ, as it is, when did Jesus do that? That's really the the debate that's going on with scholars and commentators. Or, does this still have to be done? That's the question that's there. So what's much less up for debate is that this is pointing to Jesus Christ and the work of Christ. So let's get back to what the hotly debated debate is, and it's not who, it's when. When does this happen or did this happen? What period is this talking about? So there are three main Christian streams of interpretation here within evangelicalism, within conservative evangelicalism. Of course, there are many, many more. There are some that are just saying, like, this has nothing to do, it's just story, and it's just thrown out, but that's kind of on the more liberal side of theology where it's just like, it's just story, ignore the whole thing. That's not where we are. If, you, if that's where you are, this is probably, you wouldn't be sitting in our pews listening to me talk, right? The, 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 you, you wouldn't be here if this is your belief. But these are the biggest three that, are, that most Christians fall under. 
Now, one interpretation of verses 24 through 27 is that Jesus already completed this in his death, resurrection, ascension, that this is already fulfilled with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD by Titus. Done. A second interpretation is that this is a description of the final defeat of Antichrist, which is yet to come. Hasn't happened yet. And then the third is that this is a, a prophecy directly tied to Israel as a nation with the reconstruction of the third temple. Those are the three big ones that are out there. So in summary, interpretation one believes that this has already been fulfilled in 70 AD. Second is something that needs to happen in Christ, but there are still these final defeats that need to happen against Antichrist that haven't happened yet. And third, this is a prophecy regarding the state of Israel and rebuilding of the third temple. Seems to me that this is a summary of what Christ accomplished some 2,000 years ago, but I'm not so sure that Christ's first coming is all that this section of Scripture is about. Verses 24 through 27. It seems to me that this is foreshadowing of events for us that haven't happened yet. That Christ fulfilled some of this already, but there are still things yet to come to be fulfilled. So that when we look at verse 25, it seems to me that this is speaking of history and not the future. That this is speaking of when Cyrus allowed the Israelites to repatriate. And we know this repatriatization from Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 11 through 12, that after the 70 years, the people were to be repatriated back to Jerusalem. Now, the ones who disagree with this part of the inter interpretations, they're, they're, they're getting smaller and smaller. They're, they're, most, most people will say, like, yes. Most believe that verse 25 is to be in reference to the time when Cyrus allows for the repatriatization to rebuild Jerusalem, which we read of in the book of Nehemiah. They, they think that it's that. And as Cyrus has been referred to an anointed one, a, a prince in prophetic write, writings. Then comes verse 26, and this is when things start getting a little bit more complicated. This is when people start, like, arguing. But it seems to me that this is speaking of the second period from Nehemiah to the arrival of Jesus Christ. There are people who, who right here, they break out their calculators or their abacus or whatever they want to break out. And they have paper and pencil and they start doing all this stuff. And you can, you can read all these commentaries. I mean, it, it's really fascinating. But they'll do all these calculations and then they arrive at 33 A.D., at the, and then the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And then they take a literal approach to these dates. And then, there are, uh, and then there are some who just take it symbolically, that these numbers are symbolizing other things. But whatever position that you take, it still lands on the appearance of Jesus Christ. Whether you take it literally or symbolically, it still lands on the anointed one, Jesus Christ. And this is challenging because there is also an anointed one, as you can read in verse 25. So, are these the same anointed ones, or are these two different anointed ones? Daniel, why couldn't you just have written that? Why, why are you writing anointed ones? Why, why, do, why couldn't you t say 
Messiah? Or why couldn't you just, why, 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 Cyrus? Like, why couldn't you just say? Because some believe that they are one and the same, but then it seems to me that Daniel is actually speaking of two different people. Because the very next sentence in verse 26 speaks of a prince who will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and that is obviously not Jesus Christ. Dun, 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 you see? It's obviously Cyrus. Because history tells us that. So who is this prince spoken of in verse 26? It seems to me that this is speaking of Titus in 70 AD. History tells us that this Roman military commander, Titus, whose father was Vespasian, was the Roman emperor. Titus was in charge of putting an end to this Jewish rebellion in 70 AD. He besieged the city. He destroyed Jerusalem and the second temple. He became the Roman emperor after his father's death in 79 AD. But this verse in 26, just speaking of is, is that just speaking of Titus in 70 A.D.? That last sentence in verse 26. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. So it doesn't seem to me that this is Titus in 70 A.D. That seems like a different period because Daniel wrote that there shall be war. But the thing is, is that Titus put an end to the Jewish rebellion. He became the Roman emperor, and there was no more war. So most scholars would believe that this flood was the Roman army coming in and, and flooding Jerusalem, taking over it, destroying the city, but then it stops there. And then they don't go on to explain to me, as I'm reading, this ongoing war. What, what's after that? Why do you just stop there? And it says that desolations are decreed. So what is that talking about? Like you just stop there. And so when we get to verse 27 where it reads, And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. So is the he being referred there, is that Jesus? Or is it being referred to someone else like an enemy of Jesus? Because depending on who you think that is, it really helps you interpret what you think that verse means. Some people believe that the he in verse 27 is Jesus. Now, why does that even matter? Because if someone views this as Jesus, then you interpret this verse as a positive thing. You're thinking, oh, Jesus, he makes a strong covenant. Thank you, Jesus. You're making a strong covenant. And he puts an end to sacrifice and offering because he was the final sacrifice. Therefore, we don't have to do that anymore. It's all done. But what if it's interpreted that pronoun is an enemy of Christ? Doesn't it change everything? Because if you insert that that's an enemy of Christ, it is no longer a positive thing. This is actually an act of war. Because this is a hostile act against God. Because the enemy is the one declaring, I'm putting an end to sacrifice and offering, not you. And God is like, you? And this matters because it determines for us if this is a peaceful act or if this is an act of war. 
He shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, but who is he? One of the cleaner ways that people have interpreted this is that it all ended in 70 AD, and that's why you have a lot of people who believe this. Like, oh, it's all done. Okay, we can move on. No more Daniel 9. We're done. But then how do people in that camp address these future desolations that are spoken of in verses 26 and 27? It goes on. And it seems to me that the desolator in verse 27 is yet to come. And the end of the end is what it's talking about, not what happened in 70 AD. So you look at the last sentence of this chapter, and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. We all know that God still has to deal with this evil one at the end of the end. And we are still here. We are not living in a time of peace under the reign of God. I hope not. Like that, This would be really bad if that's the case, right? Jesus Christ still has to deal with Antichrist. And if, and if this is it, if this is what it's supposed to be, this, this, this is peace and this is how justice reigns, this is horrible. Like This is bad. So it seems to me that we have things yet to come in regards to this desolator. Again, why does this even matter? I don't mean to get political on you, but Christians have made this a political issue, and I'm just bringing this to light. Have you ever met Christians, they typically are on the very, very conservative side of things, who are staunch supporters of the state of Israel? who believe strongly in the rebuilding of the third temple, that Jerusalem belongs to the Jews and that Palestinians and anyone else not of Jewish descent don't have a claim on Israel. I'm not passing judgment. I'm just saying that these four verses are the foundational pieces for them to establish that view. That's how they get it. Because they believe so strongly in in this theology of it. And so they go with this. See how these four verses are interpreted influence one's view on Israel and what has happened and what is going to happen. It influences how people think, vote, support Israel as a country. That's what these four verses do. Now, some people have come up with all of these mathematical calculations that that fit into their thinking of this. And so they'll fit things in like, oh, that makes sense as to why in 1948 the return of the Jews in the land after World War II. It makes sense the independence in 1967. And they'll do all of these different calculations based off of the numbers that we just read to come to those conclusions. And so then it further supports their beliefs in the rebuilding of their temple, which there is a temple institute, I don't know if any of you know this, where they are accumulating all of these things for the rebuilding of that third temple, that the restoration of the Jewish rituals and worship, they have all of the gear, all of the the, the significant robes, and they're waiting for a red red cow for sacrifice. They're, They're rebuilding all these different things. You can go there today and visit that place. I've been there several times. It's kind of neat. You can go there. But to restore Jewish ritual and worship and for the Jewish people having a biblical right to the land of Israel. So now do you understand 
how this can get so heated when you're, when you're talking to somebody about how you interpret this. And so, therefore, as Paul has told me to be, things, be all things to all people, I reserve the right to change my mind. Now, if you believe this, if you believe that view, I want you to know that I respect you. That that is the camp that I grew up in for decades. I'm very familiar with it. I'm very familiar with how it's interpreted. I'm very familiar in those beliefs. And there are many people who hold to this view that I respect. They were, found, they were instrumental in how I grew as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Here's my disconnect. My disconnect with fully accepting that view is, besides all of the sociological implications and all the injustices that happen with that view, there's actually a quite large spiritual and biblical disconnect for me that I can't quite, quite get to come together, and it's this. Jesus viewed himself as the replacement for the temple. The ultimate anointing of the holy place is an anointing which rests in the Holy One himself. The temple, to me, seems like it is Jesus himself. That the temple is the place of reconciliation which is in Jesus, not a location. The temple is where Jesus reigns as king. So then it begs the question, where is Jesus? Jesus has ascended to heaven, and Christians believe Jesus' presence is with us in the Holy Spirit by the Holy Spirit. That Jesus Christ is not confined to one locale, one place, and his presence is spread supernaturally via the Holy Spirit. John chapter 16, verse 7, this is what Jesus said. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Did Jesus ever say that he would restore the kingdom to Israel? Just flat out, did he ever say that anywhere in the scripture? No, I can't find it. I looked for it. I looked everywhere for it. I have like Logos Premier. I can dig up anything. I, I looked it up. It is not there. And he said it would be advantageous for him to go away and for all of us filled with the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth in the Great Commission. To tell people the good news of Jesus Christ that this is in no way confined to a location or a geography. Now, please do not misinterpret what I'm saying. I am not anti-Israel. I am not. I am not anti-Palestinian. I can prove it to you with my checkbook. I support both. But in my checkbook, what I mostly support is Jesus Christ. You can look that up too. I'm for Jesus Christ. Because on either side of it, they're both for Jesus Christ, the organizations that I support. I've been to Israel over a half dozen times. I love visiting, not because I believe it's like a pilgrimage or that it's the Holy Land or anything like that. I love visiting because it brings the Bible to life for me. 
I gain so much when I go. Like in, in 10 years of study, I can gain more in two weeks there. It's incredible. Like it just pops out of the page and be like, this is En Gedi where David was hanging out? Like this is crazy and that's the sheep he's talking about? Like this is, this is nuts. This is the water that he was drinking from. This is crazy. Like I love it. It brings everything to life to me. But ultimately, we desire to be people who follow Jesus Christ and experience life in the Holy Spirit. Now you look to Revelation 21 verse 22 and what does it read there? And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. You see why I land where I land? I'm not making it up. I'm doing a lot of study to try to land on something. But again, I reserve the right to change. If <laughs> Now I realize I may have ruffled some feathers of some of you. Like... You, you hold to an interpretation and, or you hold to a certain way of how things are viewed with Israel or, or however you view things, and I, I get it. That's not my goal. My goal was to just share these interpretations with you, and since you are coming to church here to share where I land because I'm a pastor of this church, and uh, unfortunately I get to do this today and it wasn't Nate. But Jesus said in John chapter 18, verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. So why are we putting so much emphasis on that? Daniel and his contemporaries asked this question. How long is this going to go on for? And it's the same question that we have here, right? Like, God, how long? How long all this injustice in our world? How long all the war going on in this world? How long all this unfairness? How unequitable things are? And here's the answer I have for you. No one knows. None of us knows. Here's the thing that I do know. We are one morning closer to Christ's return. That's all I know. Right? We're, we're one morning closer. And we continue down this timeline to Christ's return when what God has promised, it will come to pass. That God's word will be fulfilled. And we're just one morning closer. When it is, I don't know, but we're closer. As I invite the worship team up to come up, um, I want to continue on what we were doing last week in terms of that confession because maybe during the week something came to mind for you and saying you know what I, I really didn't even think about that and uh, I missed out on that chance to to practice confession at the church so we're going to have a couple people uh, up front here to pray with you and to practice that confession Susanna is going to be up front here and actually, um, what we're going to do is we're going to ask Pastor Nate to be in the back because maybe some people are just uncomfortable with coming up front and like being identified. Like, oh, I wonder what they're confessing. Um, so you can just go to the back. Um, even though we're all family, like we're not all not 
perfect here, right? It's not a big deal. Come up to the front. No one's going to hear you. Um, Pastor Nate will turn his recording mic off, I promise. Um, but he'll be in the back. For anyone who's uncomfortable with that, you can head on to the back there. If not, Suzanne, I'll just be up front here. I'll, I'll just be up in this right front pew here if anyone wants to practice that. We're going to just continue that if someone feels the need to do that, to practice that personal confession. Or even if you want to confess for your family, Maybe you feel that you've, your family has neglected something that it has actually had the opportunity to step into. Or to even for our church to say like, hey, you know what? This is something our church has neglected or hasn't done. Like, I want to confess this about our church, our culture, our city, our world. Whatever it may be, we want to have this opportunity for you to practice that time of confession. If you have that on your heart and you're not confessing and you're just keeping it a secret... I want to encourage you not to take communion. That we want you to be right with the Lord. That we want you to take the sacrament very seriously in terms of knowing that symbolically that cracker is symbolizing Christ's body broken for us. That is Christ's blood shed for us in the symbolism of that grape juice. That we are taking those elements in a serious, reverent way realizing that's what Jesus did for us so that we can actually practice this confession and reconciliation with God. And so as you come to terms with Jesus on that, then we invite you to participate in communion.